Gospel according to St. John, the 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. On the evening of that day, so Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of those nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Thanks for being patient with me. It's an emotional Easter hymn, uh, easily one of the best. Um, And it excellently highlights the theme for today, which is, you know, let's let's talk about Thomas for a little bit. Um, The disciples, it starts out, And the disciples are hiding in a room. The doors are locked because they're afraid of the religious authorities. It says the Jews, uh, but just to clarify, um, you know, we're talking about here, you know, the Pharisees that using their Pharisaical power were able to convince Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus. And so they're afraid that they'll come and get them too. Now, they will. Just not yet. Um, I try and put myself into their shoes because they were hiding in fear. And I, uh, I think about the very first days of the, the 
when the, the, the lockdowns happen, the quarantine. Um, I was living in St. Louis County, not St. Louis City. And they had a system where you could go online and report your neighbor if you suspected they weren't following the guidelines. Um, it, was, it was weird. It was freaky. Uh, neighbor was turning in neighbor, yada, yada. Um, uh, this, if you're not familiar, there's something called the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. And basically, if you do the paperwork, you can get access to any file that the government has. And so a guy filed a Freedom of Information Act request and got the PDF, like the 300-page PDF of all of the reports that people had filed against their neighbors, loved ones, um, religious institutions, yada, yada. Uh, So I pulled it up on my phone and I scrolled through it. Uh, People were reporting churches, uh, suspecting that they were worshiping. Uh, and they, they were hoping that the police would come and stop them from worshiping. <clears throat> um, separated and divorced couples were reporting one another, hoping to build negligence cases against their partner to try and win custody of their children. Uh, Next-door neighbors were literally in these reports writing, I looked in my neighbor's window and saw... Their son came home from college. He's not supposed to be there. They're breaking the rules. All sorts of terror and terrible things were happening. um, And I think it revealed a lot of um, very primitive things that are in our hearts. And I pray it never happens again. Um, When... Stuff like that's happening, it does make you want to hide. It makes you want to hide from the world. Uh, to go against what the apostle said when Jerry was reading the Acts reading, I must obey God rather than man. But where do they find that courage? Uh, in this gospel reading, we come face to face with the means of the entire world's salvation, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes into the lockdown room. He shows his wounds, and this is the most important part, possibly the whole Bible. Jesus shows them his wounds, and he says, peace be with you. By these wounds you're healed, right? This is the peace. This is how the peace is with you. I'm here with my wounds where I earned your salvation. Here they are. By his wounds, we're still healed, even to this day. Christ's wounds bring peace, reconciliation between brothers, neighbors, the church, and the world. All these things, it's only through Christ's wounds He showed the disciples, and he shows us, though sometimes it's hard to remember. But Christ has his wounds still, today, now. 
Jesus has holes in his hands, in his side. There are holes where thorns went into his skull. There are wounds in his feet. They're still there today, and they still bring us peace. They still bring us healing. They still reconcile brothers that hate one another. Though sometimes we forget, because the real Jesus crucified with his holy wounds don't always make it into churches these days. Just like how the lamb in the Revelation reading, the jury read, the lamb was wounded. And by his wounds, we achieve salvation through faith in him. And he, so he continues to have those five wounds from the cross, even in his perfect resurrected state. And if you stick around for Bible study, we're going to talk about the five reasons why Jesus still has wounds. And if you're an edgy teenager, sorry, but the pentagram It's actually an ancient sacred symbol of the five wounds of Christ. If you really want to be edgy, you wear the inverted pentagram to show that you're denying the five wounds of Christ that save you on the cross. That's how you really be edgy. Another important point is Jesus is really there. All right? So in some of the Gospels, Jesus, he, it's like, hey, I'm here, I'm not a ghost. In John, we don't get the ghost uh, thing, but Jesus is trying to say, I'm here in my body and my soul. Uh, you know, again, the wounds. And when you are made perfect in the resurrection, you will have body and soul, because that is perfection to God. To not just be a spirit flying around or haunting a castle, even though that would be cool for at least like 10 years. God wants to reunite you with your body and not your old decrepit body. As homebound people sometimes ask me, when you say pastor in your sermons that we're going to be resurrected, reunited with the flesh, does that mean that my knee that hurts, my hips that hurt, I'm going to have to deal with that all over again? No. Think glorified, perfected body. Sharing in the glory of the Son. Jesus is not a ghost. He's here with his disciples. His resurrection is true, so now nothing else matters. Not the jobs, not the interests. Nothing else matters more than Jesus' resurrection. And I want to teach you two big words today, but they're important. They're important words. The first one is objective justification. Now, I'm teaching you this word because justification is a real word in the Bible. It goes by the Greek word dikaiatsune. Objective justification is nothing else then Jesus declares that you are forgiven. You are holy. You are loved. You are enough before God. Why? 
because Jesus said so. By your faith in him, you are forgiven. And that's wonderful. It's what Jesus is doing here. And it's objective in that no matter what other people are saying, no matter what you are telling yourself inside, no matter what the devil is telling you, no matter what the world says about you, Jesus says to you in faith, you are forgiven, you are holy, you are good enough. I love you, says Jesus. And this is why, for Lent, I focused on absolution. We all know absolution, though. That's the part where I tell you your sins are forgiven after you confess. Absolution is none other than the delivery of the forgiveness of sins. The words do what they say. We are uniquely blessed as Christians to be able to hear constantly, your sins are forgiven, and those words are as true as God said them himself to you. Your sins are forgotten. When you get to heaven, you'll say, God will say, oh, welcome to heaven. This is excellent. I can't wait. I've been waiting so long to meet you. And you'll say, but what about that one time? And Jesus will say, what are you talking about? Why will Jesus say, what are you talking about? None other than your sins have been forgiven. When you confess and receive those words, your sins are forgiven. The key benefit of our church is that this is something you can look outside of yourself and grab a hold of. It's objective, once again. It's objective. It's outside yourself. Uh, someone's got to help me on the classic rock, but the Boston, right? More than a feeling. More than a feeling, right? It's more than a feeling. It's something outside of yourself. It's God saying you are forgiven. So we return, right? You might say in your heart, I'm not off the hook. I still feel bad about it. Other people might remind you, remember when you did that? The devil might lurk and say, you're despicable. No one else knows, but I know you did that. But Jesus shows you his wounds and says, peace be with you, fear not. Your sins are forgiven. And then something incredible happens. He breathes on his disciples. And it says, by this, they're given the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit is given to you. They went from this, you know, we're recounted the Genesis accounts where God creates man and then out of dust and he breathes into them, spirit. Well, now Jesus is taking old dead people and breathing his spirit into them, giving them new life, his life. And this is the driving factor that creates disciples that do things like Jerry read about in Acts, standing before kings and governors and Roman soldiers, pronouncing the word of God 
teaching in the synagogues. And there's this really interesting quote where it says something like, everyone admired what they were doing, but no one had enough gall to stand up and do it with them because they were afraid. But not the apostles anymore. They went from locked doors to standing in the streets, getting arrested, being broken out of jail by the Spirit, and then when they stand before council, saying, we must obey God rather than men. In the same way you are breathed on with the Holy Spirit, that initial time was when you were baptized. You received the Holy Spirit in its entirety. Don't think, you know, you got like a quarter of the Holy Spirit and then every time you go to church you get more and it fills up your glass. Nope, you get the whole thing. Every time you read the scriptures, every time you hear the scriptures read to you, every time a sermon's preached to you, every time you receive communion, every time you respond to the Lord and you give the Lord a Eucharistic sacrifice, a thanksgiving sacrifice, which means you praise him, you pray to him, you sing to him, you worship with your brothers and sisters, you forgive. The Holy Spirit is being poured into you and you are pouring out the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are truly forgiven. Whoever sins you do not forgive, they are truly not forgiven. You have a superpower. Be careful. You are immortal. Be careful. And so I want to close by talking about the object of our faith, Jesus. Christ, Jesus, is fully God. He's fully man. He has the wounds. He has the body. But he does miraculous things like go into locked doors. You know, it seems kind of goofy for someone that just rose from the dead. But yes, he somehow got in the room, even though the door was locked. And don't hit me with the, the window is open. They didn't want people looking in that day. Jesus victoriously made peace with God on our behalf. We receive the benefits of his cross at our altar through the means of grace. You see, the altar is this ultimate sign that God is here with us. That's why I face this altar, whether we're praying and I'm facing you, I'm still facing the altar, or I'm facing that way during whatever's going on in the beginning of the service. I'm facing the altar because God's there. It's where God dispenses what he earned. You see, you go to work or you went to work. You earned the food that you put on your table, but your family doesn't eat dinner in the emergency room where you work. Your family doesn't eat dinner at the cubicle where you work or the classroom or whatever. Your family eats dinner at the dinner table. And so the benefits of your work are dispensed at your family table where you provide for your family. And you give them life. You give them love. So Jesus earned our salvation on the cross. And he distributes, what does it say? The glory, honor, wealth, riches, wisdom. All the things in that 
hymn that we sing during Easter. He distributes those things to you from fonts in baptism, from an altar in communion, from a, this is not a pulpit, sorry, an ambo. An ambo. He distributes his word. And now he does that work of creating, of sustaining faith, true saving faith with a spirit. He restores Thomas. You see, Thomas was messed up. He was sick. He was defeated. He was angry. He was resentful. It wasn't a coincidence that he wasn't there with his brothers in that locked room. He was off by himself somewhere hiding. The worst way to hide. And um, when I read this reading to someone in the hospital, they said, oh, fun, doubting Thomas. It's our gut reaction. Little do we know it's not doubting Thomas. It's unbelieving Thomas, which is a very sad state to be in. I understand people are hurt. I understand people are hurt by churches. People are hurt by pastors. People are hurt by Sunday school teachers. People are hurt by ignorant parents that are not willing to give an answer to their children when they ask them religious questions. And, oh boy, are people hurt by priests. But to close yourself off by choice from faith, to close yourself off from a relationship with Jesus Christ because of an arbitrary rule you have set up, is evil. And that's what Thomas is doing there. He's saying, unless I touch those wounds, unless I touch that side, I'm not going to believe. I will not believe. Even though his closest friends in the world are pleading on Jesus' behalf, please, we saw him, he's alive. Mary said it. We saw it. Peter and John, they were there. They saw it. He's alive. The people from the road to Emmaus, they came and saw us, and they said they met with Jesus and they ate with him. And Thomas, which just, it kills me. His name means the twin, which means his brother, said, please, I love you. Jesus is alive. Believe in him. And he said, no. I won't believe until my rules are met. And that's why when Jesus appears and he shows his wounds, and finally Thomas believes, Jesus has some harsh words for him. He says, you believe because you've seen? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You guys, the disciples, John the Baptist, you have not seen the Lord. You have not seen his wounds and his sides, his side, let alone touch them. Yet you believe. You believe because someone you love told you about Jesus. 
So thank you for being here. Thank you for being here today. Jesus is here to make you glad. You who were sad and afraid, God is here to make you glad. Just as he made the disciples glad who were fear, who were afraid and hiding, who had failed. He's here with you in his words, in his body, in his blood. And so now we're charged, like the apostles, to go to our brother, go to our sister in Christ, who's missing. And to with Thomas, who is missing like Thomas, and to share the gospel with them, because that's the only way. I can't go and talk to him. Someone else isn't going to go and talk to your brother and sister in Christ. Jesus has given you to talk with them and be Jesus for them. For we all know that Jesus loves you and that he died on the cross for your sins. Even the demons know this, but they shudder. What's missing for many, especially your close friends and family members and people at work, even church members often, is my second big word, subjective justification. Subjective meaning your personal. So yes, Jesus rose from the dead. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. But it's more than historical knowledge. It's more than reason. Jesus did this for you. And until you grab hold of that in faith, it remains historical knowledge. It remains a fact that you learned on the internet. And every week you confirm it with his means of grace. You receive communion. Every day you remember your baptism and confirm it. Full assurance of your salvation. You are baptized. You are one. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You are saved. And so to close for real, the word wasn't enough for Thomas. I want to be kind on him in these last few seconds. The word wasn't enough for Thomas, just like the word isn't enough for me. Got you to look up. Sure, it should have been. God's word. Uh, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. God's word is enough. It's what Jesus spent his whole time talking about and pointing to. And it's, it's been enough for many people throughout the years. And I mean millions of Americans specifically, when they worship, they only partake in word ministry. They sing a few songs, pastor talks, and they go home. And that's enough for them. But for us sinners, we also need to touch the bloody, dripping flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in his supper. And so every time we go and we meet him in his supper, 
When we touch his wounds and receive peace, life, forgiveness of sins, we exclaim with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Amen.